Two pastors and Tom walk into a bar, but this is no joke. It's the start of a conversation between three friends about culture, God, beer, and more. So pull up a chair, order a pint, and let's get started. Welcome to the Neighborhood Pub, and welcome to Pine Class Preachers. I'm Tom O'Neill, and joining me are my co-hosts, Josh and Gabe. Today, the three of us guys are going to be sharing our infinite wisdom on the topic of feminism. This episode is guaranteed to marginalize our female audience and land us on the couch tonight. This is going to be great. Yo, 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 yo. yo. Because it's ladies' night, and the feeling's right. right. Uh, Does anyone know the rest of those words? I think that's the only words that there is to the whole song. Tom, that's, you're old, and that came out when you were alive, probably, been born. So what are the rest of the words to that song? Yeah, I don't uh, know, but uh, whatever that prepubescent version of NSYNC that you guys just did, uh, you know what? We're just going to leave it out there, and let's get moving with this podcast because nobody needs to hear that. Ladies and gentlemen, for the dozens of people listening around the world, mostly congested in the Midwest, it is time for Pint Glass Preachers! Come on, 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 come on. I wish I could dubstep beatbox, that'd be sick. Everyone does, everyone does. Tom, ask us your question. What question am I supposed to ask you? What are we drinking? Because Gabe's got You have one job, Tom, you have one job. I don't know, the way you made it sound, it sounded like I had some really important question to kick off the topic of feminism or whatever, but let's just go, let's bring it back. I got it. What are we drinking, Gabe? Well, today, tonight, in fact, I have a real beer. I'm very excited. Uh, Revolver Blood and Honey. It's uh, one of my favorites right now. It's an American ale. Uh, it's brewed in Granbury, Texas, which is in uh, the, the DFW area. And it's really delicious. Josh, how about that you? It's like one of those, I don't know, but that sounds like one of those terrible, you know, what are those new whiskeys, like Hot Fireball and Honey? You know, where you mix, like, an atomic fireball, whiskey, and a boatload of honey, and it tastes, tastes super weird. That's what that sounds like. Well, it can sound like that, but it's not what it tastes it, like. It tastes like heaven. Oh. It is oh. ale brewed with blood orange peel, honey, and spices. Oh. So it's pretty much like a Texas knockoff of Blue Moon. No, dude. It's much heavier than that. Oh. Okay. Well, anyway, uh, I am taking a little trip to the beautiful mountains of North Carolina, some uh, Appalachian classic Highland Brewing Company's Gaelic Ale. Ooh. It's a staple of mine. I'm not going to lie. I discovered Highland when we moved to Chattanooga, and uh, they've got, like, St. Teresa's Pale Ale. This Gaelic Ale is super clutch. Pretty much anything that you ever find from Highland is going to be amazing. So uh, for all of you listeners out there, if you see some Highland Brewing Company, pick up a six-pack. Or maybe seven of them. Whoa. 
Tom, what do you got tonight, bro? Well, I decided to go south of the border for my uh, for my drink of choice tonight. We are drinking a handcrafted margarita, and let me tell you how I make this, okay? We're ready. We're squeezing in about a half a lime. All right. Adding we are skin putting in a margarita mix. <laughs> no, 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 no. Half a lime. Then we're putting in uh, two full shots of tequila. One shot of an orange liqueur, whether it's a triple sec if you want to go super cheap or like a Grand Marnier, uh, something like that. And then we're putting in about a tablespoon or two to your liking of agave syrup. We are stirring that up and pouring that over ice. And it hey. makes one delicious margarita. Tom, you sound like a margarita elitist right there. I absolutely am. I almost refuse to drink any margaritas out. Ex- so what? So then what's your tequila uh, Actually, choice, my tequila of choice is Camarina. Uh, tequila. It is a really cheap tequila, actually. Here's something that for all of you out there, tequila does not get noticeably better after you spend like $50 a bottle. So if you're looking at a $100 bottle of tequila or something like that, it's not any better. But on the flip side, uh, if you go cheaper than $20, it's absolute crap because usually it's not 100% agave. Well, here's the deal. This Camarena uh, uh, tequila is 100% agave. It's only about 22 bucks a bottle, so it's really on the cheap side, but it's consistently scored in the high 90s at the San Francisco beer and wine tasting, whatever. So I uh, I like it. It's fantastic, and I am an elitist when it comes to tequila and margaritas. And it's just a mere $2 over the $20 mark. I mean, you can't beat that. Are you looking this up on... Are you looking that up online too, Gabe? Because uh, I didn't necessarily trust Tom, and so I'm on Bevmo's website right now. And uh, yeah, I guess I guess his review uh, assessment is correct. Um, hey, so today we are talking about feminism. It's Ladies' Night tonight, uh, so we're excited about that. And, and we're not going to get into the topic quite yet uh, because as I was thinking about this topic, a few uh, thoughts crossed my mind, and so I just want to float these by you guys, see if these are shared experience experiences as, as men. All right. So, uh, the three of us are, are fathers of young children and, uh, which, which means, you know, in the relatively recent past, uh, we have been there when, uh, our wives have given birth and, or, uh, in the process leading up to that. And, uh, and so I was just thinking about this the other day. So, so two things happened to me in this, and I'm curious if it's the same for you. So the first one is, uh, prior to, uh, my wife giving birth whenever we have like doctor's appointments at her OBGYN and like I go with her for ultrasound. Did you guys go with your wives to ultrasounds? Absolutely. Wouldn't miss it because I'm the most perfect husband in the world. Well, that's sure. Except for the very first one of our first child. And let me tell you something. Jenny does not let me forget that. How could you miss that? Well, funny story uh, to me. And hopefully to you, but definitely not to my wife. So she's pregnant with our first child, Harper. And, um, you know, we're getting ready for the first ultrasound. And it just so happens to be also our first year at seminary. And uh, Steam Zank, Adam Burke, uh, Caleb, what's his last name? This dude, Caleb. Well, we all decide, or Steve invites us up to one of his random, you know, relatives' cabins in some middle-of-nowhere place in Wisconsin. God's country. But the promise of the trip was a visit to New Glarus, which we all love. And the weekend of the trip just happened to coincide with the weekend that we were going to be getting this ultrasound. And I had planned the trip before the ultrasound. Oh my gosh. And, you know, 
my wife, being wonderful, did one of those things and was like, oh, don't worry about it. I'll reschedule. You can, you know, you can go, whatever. Uh, so, of course, like an idiot man, I was like, all right, cool, excellent. So I was gone for the weekend and came back, and that's when I saw the picture, the first ultrasound of our eldest wow. daughter, Harper. Wow. I won. I won. Big now, time. Josh, had you gone, and in consequence uh, times of going, I'm curious if you experienced this, and uh, Tom, if you experienced this, but every time I go with my wife to the OBGYN to get an ultrasound, like, you know, I walk, you know, we go from the waiting room into the, you know, the main part of, of the medical facility, and I feel like everyone working there looks at me as if, like, I am just the biggest POS for existing. Like, it's just like, oh, what are you doing here? And it's like, right, exactly. Like, it's like, hey, real excited. Oh, Melissa, hey, how are you? Oh, he's here too. Like, that's, am I the only one that feels that? Or do you guys, have you suffered that as well? Yeah, I I, I get more of the stares. And the funny thing is, is every time I'm sitting in that, in that waiting room at the OBGYN, I'm the only guy there and there's a bunch of other pregnant women waiting yes. for the same appointment. And I'm like, why am I getting stared at for being the good husband around here? Right, right. So, you know, what's funny is I don't remember ever getting like the hate stares, you know, or the judgmental stares. Uh, but I always got like the pity stares and looks. Oh, really? You know I mean, <laughs> like, like, oh, we're glad you're here, but you have no idea what's going on. Or we're sorry you feel really uncomfortable while we rub down your wife with petroleum jelly so we can look inside of her womb. You know what I mean? Like, it was more by the nurses and, and OBs and stuff, like, looking at me like, you just don't have a clue. We're glad you're here, but we feel really sorry for you because you've got a hot dog, not a hamburger. Mm, mm. That was a good anatomy lesson at the end. Too. Thank you. Thank you. Thank um, you. you know, Thank I you. always – I maybe it was because they already knew what I was thinking in my head because, you know, you go for this monthly checkup – and it's always the same. You walk in, hey, how you feeling? They say, my wife says, fine. And they're like, all right, let's listen to that heartbeat. And then they like, you know, touch her belly for two seconds. All right, everything sounds good. And we're out of there. I was like, and that was 125 bucks. Like I could have just put True. the phone Which, to her do belly. You know what, though? So when you were just telling that story, it made me think of what a turd I am. Because that happens all the time too. Because like, you know, we'll go in, doctor says to Melissa, hey, how you doing? She says, I'm fine. And then they just get down to business. And I'm always sitting there like, I'm here too. Don't you want to know how I'm doing? Like, why won't you talk? This is really hard for me. Right. I am exhausted. Uh, Yeah. Okay. So speaking of us having to suffer a lot less. So then you get to the delivery, right? Which, of course, like, as a dude, it's nothing. And our wives are wonderful. And I just can't even imagine. So grateful for it. Yes. And then baby comes out, and then you spend the night in the hospital. Did you guys all stay the night in the hospital? Every time. Okay. So you stay the night in the hospital, and it's that's the weirdest thing to me because then, like, the nurses, you know, they check in throughout the night. And I don't know if you guys do this, but I always do this thing where, like, when a nurse comes in, it could be, like, 3 in the morning, and I've been, like, sleeping. But when they come in, I try to pretend like I haven't been. And yeah, I'm like, like you've been well, awake hello, the whole welcome time. to the room. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> 
It's like, oh, absolutely. Like you've been just patiently waiting by the bedside of your, you know, wife and yep. infant, you know, child. It's because you're like the most legit dad, you know. It's like, I'm going to be vigilant for the next 25 exactly. years. I'm never going to sleep. Exactly. Yep. Even though you know, like, that the next week you're going to be fighting your wife for who gets to stay asleep while the other one's got to get up and go put the baby back to sleep. Yep. Honey, yep. Exactly. Without your boob, feed the baby. I need my Well, sleep. hey. And, and on that note, I can't think of a better time to head into a break. Uh, so uh, this week, we are so excited. Uh, it's ladies' night, and so we have a, a lady musical guest this week, uh, our good friend Dossie. It's a, uh, she's a, a singer-songwriter in one sense, plays in a bluegrass band in another sense, but she just released a solo album that's, that's really more like an electronic album. So we want to listen to you, uh, have you listen to a track of hers right now, and uh, we hope you enjoy it. We'll be back in uh, Two Shakes of a Lamb's Tale. Here's some Dossie for you. Keep you from love, not even the worst things you can think of. Loss of a child, never repeat. Secrets or regrets when you are needy. Oh man, I love it. We're gonna get right into it here. We're gonna start. Uh, we're gonna start the discussion from a theological context, and we're gonna start right at the beginning. We're gonna start in Genesis. And Gabe, I think you got a couple couple thoughts that you wanted to bring us in with. Yeah, man. Well, and and I just want to say, I think I, just to even frame Genesis, and then as we maybe do just a, a quick theology here. Like, I think the reason why I want to position this theologically is to explain, kind of as a Coming from a Christian perspective, like I think feminism can have a place. I think there's a place for it. We're going to get into that way more as we keep going. But it does run in, there are points of it where it maybe runs into some some issues with scripture, uh, or maybe it doesn't. Maybe it's been some misinterpretation. So uh, I'm going to do my best to get us started, and Josh is going to correct some of my errors. So uh, here we go. Uh, so one of the things when it comes to to gender and roles and and that sort of thing in in scripture is you, you kind of start in Genesis 2, Genesis 2.18, uh, you know, God kind of creates everything. And, and for the first time in all of creation history, uh, he says something is not good. And he says, it's not good that man is alone. And God says this key phrase, he says, so I'm going to make a helper fit for him. Now that word helper, uh, there's a lot in there and we can maybe unpack that in a little bit here. Uh, but that ends up being woman and, and, you know, Eve gets created from Adam's rib and it's, you know, it's a really exciting thing. And he says a little poem, little, you know, first love song ever written, little Phil Collins action. And, um, wait, can I, tell, can I tell my favorite joke? Please. No, it's my, okay. I should qualify. It's my favorite Genesis two joke. 
So Adam's sitting in the garden and he's kind of lonely. (laughs) Who even has Genesis 2 jokes? (laughs) We are pastors and we don't have Genesis 2 jokes. So where is this coming from? That's what I think about when you guys are preaching. I come up with jokes. So Adam's sitting in the garden and he's... uh, he, he's lonely and, you know, cause the animals don't talk and things like that. And, and he says, God, could, could I have someone who's like me? And God says, sure, but it's going to cost you an arm and a leg. And Adam says, what can I get for a rib? Hey, what, what, what? That's super funny. Hey, when our me guest slapper. comes on, you should tell her that joke. <laughs> <laughs> um, I know it's terrible, but it's, you know, it's topical. It is topical. Very topical. So anyways, yeah. So Eve, comes out of the rib and there you have it. And so here she is the helper fit for Adam. Uh, and so inherently though, and, and we were actually just discussing this before we, we even recorded is, you know, oftentimes that term helper is translated as help mate, which just, or help meet, which is even weirder sounding help meet, uh, which is an odd word. But, but the idea is actually it's, I think at least in my understanding, it's less about like, ah, here is the subservient person uh, but in fact, it's here's this person who's made to fit with Adam, like like it's like puzzle pieces, like woman and man interlock uh, with one another that where he's lacking, uh, she fills in and where she's lacking, he fills in and and they, they make each other whole and complete that they're, they're kind of meant to be together in that way. So another, another, go on. Another great translation to that or another piece to that is uh, the word I've heard used there is worthy because you know, right before woman's created, you have man, and all you do have is animals out there, and and man is lonely and 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 doesn't have this suitable partner, and so uh, that word of here is a worthy partner to be with you, and, and so that's, I, that's actually really helpful because what you have just a couple verses um, later is uh, and and God created them male and female, He created them. Uh, and, and really what that's driving at is that both male and female are made in the image of God, uh, which, you know, is the theological term we call for as the Imago Dei. Uh, and, and it's this idea that all human beings are created with inherent value, with inherent worth, uh, with inherent um, dignity, and that there's no real difference there. And so I think, I think that's a, a fair way to think about it. But you start to run into something here. And I think, Josh, if you maybe want to pick it up in Ephesians in a second here, um, but what you you have is there's an equal amount of value, but is there a distinction in roles? Is there a difference between man and woman and what they're meant to do? And that's kind of the, well, the question this raises. Go on. I was going to say, before we even get to Ephesians, uh, which I'm going to do here in just a second, um, as you were talking, I think there's something that we largely overlook, um, but it pops up throughout Scripture, particularly when Jesus uh, begins to kind of reveal himself in the Gospels as the, the Son of God, the promised Messiah, uh, you know, the indwelling of God in human form, is that throughout, throughout the Bible and this biblical narrative, we see that God gives us glimpses into his own um, Trinitarian nature. Uh, you know, in John 17, you know, Christ prays that the disciples would be one and have unity with each other like he has with the Father. And I think that that same um, application can be made here in Genesis where there's this, like you said, this interlocking of male and female with different roles in the same way that when you look at the Trinity, there are three persons, each with very distinct roles in terms of the salvific narrative. Um, and, And at the same time, they're completely one and they're unified. 
you know? And I think yeah. that's what's typically overlooked because we, as humans, especially broken humans, we tend to jump at something that seems unfair. Oh, man's first, so now they're just going to lord it over women, you know, and this have this authoritarian nature. But when you look at Scripture, I think that what God's intent was very early on was to say, hey, look, I exist in perfect unity with the Son and the Spirit, and yet we hold different roles in terms of how we not only interact with one another, but interact with creation. The Father didn't become incarnate. It was the Son, Jesus Christ. You know, when Jesus left, he didn't hang around forever, but he sent the Holy Spirit to be this guarantor of faith, you know, and the one that would help and comfort and encourage and all that kind of stuff. And so I can't think of uh, a better understanding than, especially as we look to Ephesians chapter 5, and as a pastor, you know, I get to do weddings uh, quite often. And this is one of my favorite verses because I think it speaks to this uh, this unifying nature, yet distinction of roles. Um, and, and I'm just going to read the first couple of verses because it kind of goes on a while. But, but basically uh, what Paul is saying is he's speaking to this topic of wives and husbands, not necessarily like separate and distinct male and female friends, but within the confines of marriage, it says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. I'm so offended. No. Time out. My 21st century sensibilities have been rocked. Time out. Pause. What the, what the hell just happened? Oh, my God. Hey, what is Paul even family saying? Family show. He is a misogynist. He, Pig. I don't even know. Wow. Women just are worth nothing. No. That's not what Paul's saying. And typically what I like to emphasize, especially when I share this at a wedding, is this distinction of roles uh, that takes on something far greater than what society deems the positions of men and women, or even historically, how men have usurped uh, this power and authority yeah. and dominion of role and broken it into you know very sinful ways. But here Paul is clearly saying, like, the church submits to Christ. Okay, we as the church cannot supersede or usurp Christ's power. He is the head of the church. He is the authority. He is the, the rule, the regulations, the fulfillment of all scriptures. And so therefore, we willingly and gladly submit to him, not in some sort of like enslavement, but we submit to him because in this act of, of obedience, of trust, and of faith that he has not only our best interests in mind, but that he's going to protect us. He's going to love us in this kind of perfect godly way, which he does because he's Christ. Yeah. You know, and so when we look at this wives and husbands, um, it just doesn't stop with the wife. But then Paul switches and he says, okay, wives, that was your thing. Husbands, this is in verse 25 of Ephesians chapter 5. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or anything, that she might be holy and without blemish. And if you skip down a few verses, it, it, it references actually Genesis chapter 2, and then Paul finishes this section off and he says, this mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So ultimately, Paul's aim and his goal and his exposition of Scripture, especially coming from that Genesis account you just read, Gabe, is just simply to say, it's a mystery. We can't somehow, uh, as men, we can't usurp this authority and say, okay, God made us in charge. Ladies, shut your mouths. Right. You know, do what right. I say. You know, there is this essence of faith and mystery and 
you know, unexplainability. Like we can't, scripture never explains why God said, I'm going to create men first and not women first. You know what I mean? Well, so, so I think Paul reinforces that. So let me just interrupt you here though. Cause like, okay, so you paint kind of this ideal, uh, which is nice, but I, I want to raise two questions to it. One is like, let's just recognize though, like men don't, you know, men, we're supposed to take our cues from Christ, right? You're supposed to sacrifice yourself for the sake of your bride, for the sake of your wife, which means like you eat the piece of burnt toast, right? That's what I always say. You eat the piece of burnt toast. You suck it up, bro. And like, just you pour yourself out. But the reality is like, that's gross. Um, But the, the reality is like, we're not that good at it. Number one, even those of us that try and know this. And then on top of it, you got dudes that are just straight up bad guys that, you know, abuse their wives. Uh, don't, speak well of them, are cruel men. And and I think there's been abuse in the church. I think we need to acknowledge that, that there has been abuse in the church in which it said, well, you got to submit, just submit. And so, so oh, absolutely. it still continues today. It, right. It still continues Oh, absolutely. Today. After that same abuse still, yeah, exactly. So what, what, what do we say to that? So that's my first question. Well, I mean, I, I don't want this to sound like a cop-out or I'm trying to escape, but the, the easy answer is that Right after that passage that you read in Genesis 2 comes Genesis chapter 3, where man and woman both failed miserably to actually be who they were created to be. And so therefore sin entered the world and things got screwed up big time. You know, if it wasn't screwed up, then why would Paul even say anything? You know what I mean? And I think to ignore, at least from a Christian perspective, to ignore the fact that God's law, as perfect and holy and instructive as it is, uh, you know, doesn't somehow give us this ideal Christian or ideal faith life to live up to, you know, that's a farce. But the fact is we can never actually attain it. And so I think what Paul is saying, when he, especially when he talks about it as a mystery, is saying, you guys, none of us get it. We really don't. Men, you have no idea how to love your wives as Christ loves the church. Ladies, you have no idea what it means to submit to your husband as the church does to Christ. Because the church, just like you said, continues to perpetuate abuse all the time. You know, so it's like... It's difficult, I think, to either, one, escape the, the guilt that the church has for perpetuating broken systems in, in antagonistic or authoritarian ways. But at the same time, I also think it's short-sighted to say, well, we're able to accomplish the ideal relationship between men and women, not only within one another in the confines of marriage, but in society as well. It's just not going to happen. It's a mystery of how this actually works itself out. I mean, I don't know. Is that well? So I cheat. I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think. This? I guess my struggle with I mean, what, what you're you saying, think? like I, I mean, I guess what I would say is, I think, oh, and I could end up getting punched in the face for this by someone, but I, I think it, it has to go together, right? So, insofar as a husband loves his wife as Christ loves the church and gave himself up for her. That's insofar as a wife submits to her husband. So, so the idea being like, you know, I think about it like this way, like I have a daughter who I love dearly and I want the best for her and I want her to take over the world and she's awesome. Right. And if she ends up getting married one day to a dude, like he better be a freaking great dude. Like if I actually believe this to be true he better be the sort of guy that's like able to just lay it all out there for her and give of himself completely for her. 
And if he's not, then I'm going to tell her, forget that guy. You don't need that loser. I'm not saying like if they're married, that's whole, you know, we'll, we'll figure that out. But on the way, I'm like, it's insofar as he's fulfilling his role that I think submission plays its part. Right. So then, so then here comes the question. This actually ties into feminism really well is like, is there, um, I think I ought to put this. So is the ideal worth striving for then? Or should we just say, let's get really pragmatic. Wait, the, the ideal to what end? The ideal of this joint, uh, this joint, you know, this, this unity all with, with distinct roles or yeah. the ideal for individual men and individual women to achieve or get as close to the Imago Dei as possible. I mean, what are you talking about? Um, I would say for the the roles, for the roles is what I'm talking about. So like the Imago Dei well, is, this is really inherently given. I mean, there's just no way, okay. you know, that's just there. Yeah. What are you going to do about it? Yeah, you're absolutely right. Well, and, and I guess when you think about the roles, especially now, the, what's really prevalent, and I hate to, you know, try and make myself sound really smart and drop some pretty, you know, crazy terms here. And maybe this is a question. I love doing I'm that. not sure. But when today there seems to be this, this really, you know, kind of, I don't want to say like violent discussion, but it's a very heated discussion uh, between uh, an egalitarian view of ministry and I would even say societal roles and a complementarian view. And all that, all that means, if you break it down, is an egalitarian view is that there should be equal ministry opportunity for both genders. Men and women are not only just as capable, but should be afforded the same opportunities to pastor churches, to be presidents of organizations, uh, you know, to be evangelists, apostles, shepherds, teachers, you know, you name it. Uh, whereas a complementarian would say that because of these unique roles given by God at the creation of men and women, that their roles within ministry are also differentiated because of their gender, uh, which a complementarian theologian, of which I am, would say that that's actually backed up uh, in Scripture, not only by the historicity of the church, but also through a lot of Paul's writings uh, in Scripture. And so, you know, I think this, yeah, we can give it this kind of theological underpinnings, but how it plays out in our churches and in our societies is is a whole different whole different story. Well, so let me ask that, and, and then we got to go to a break in just a couple minutes here, but I, I just want to ask that, though, because I think it's, it's kind of interesting that we're going with, on the one hand, you talk about the roles within marriage, but does that extend to society broadly then? Do we say, oh, well, it says this in Ephesians 5 about marriage. Should we then extend those roles into society? And to me, where I sit, I don't see Paul making that claim. 
No, no, which is why I think it's like ridiculous where some churches would actually try and lord it over women in their congregations and say, like, you literally cannot be a college professor or there's n- it's biblically mandated that you aren't allowed to be, like, say, the president of a, of a company. You know what I mean? Yeah. That, that's crossing the line, absolutely, because that's speaking where Scripture doesn't speak at all. Preach. Cool. So, hey. Anyway. Let's go to break. We uh, examined this, I think, theologically pretty well, but we kind of want to bring it into the societal implications, and uh, we're really grateful we're going to have a friend join us in just a moment. But first, we're going to take a break. Here is some more Dasi. Uh, we hope you guys enjoy it. She's awesome. Hope you check her out. She's straight out of, actually, originally out of Waco, Texas, but now out of Austin, Texas. Enjoy some Dasi. That was Dossie. Be sure to check her out. Uh, her latest album, Diamond, is uh, is out. She has performed at South by Southwest. Had a great showing there. Uh, and so we encourage you to uh, give her a listen. Well, hey, uh, it is uh, ladies' night. It's feminism night. And we have invited our good friend Sarah Baker to join us real quick. Uh, biography of Sarah Baker. She is uh, straight out of Minnesota, just like Prince. Uh, she's a graduate of uh, Concordia St. Paul, Go Bears. Uh, she also has a, a master's degree from Texas State University. Go Bobcats. Uh, she's a doctoral candidate at Texas State University. She's currently working on her dissertation, which she's going to share with us a little bit about in a second here. But she recently presented at the American Educational Research Association in DC at their national conference. Pretty amazing. Um, And so we are just honored to have her here. She is uh, married to her husband, Minor, a mother of four great kids that are nice to my kids, uh, a, a wonderful Christian lady, and most importantly, my good friend. And, uh, and so Sarah Baker, who is just in and out, is now back. It's perfect timing, Sarah. I just finished the introduction. Welcome back, Sarah. We are glad to have you on Pine Glass Preachers. Thanks for being here. Welcome, Sarah. Woohoo! I wish we had an applause button so we could at least give you some clapping or something when you came in. We really need it. We really need it. So, Sound effects. Yes, yes. So, Sarah, I just uh, laid out for our, our good listeners here that you are working on your doctoral dissertation. And I'm wondering, for us simpletons here, especially Tom, uh, would you just kind of, in layman's terms, explain what your dissertation is about? 
So I am studying the lived experiences of women that are educational leaders and mothers and the challenges that they face in those two identities, um, the joys that they have in those two identities, and what implications for the work hoping um, or the hope for some of the implications could be that we could also begin to think about policies and structures that could be changed to support women in the their identities of being an educational leader and a mother. Gotcha. Oh wow, that is fascinating. Okay, can you give me can you give me like an example of uh, of one of these educators and moms that you're looking at? Because I I don't think I've ever heard that before, so it's kind of fascinating. But I'm curious as to like who who you study for that. So who I'm studying right now are women that have, um, are in educational leadership positions. So that includes a woman who is a principal and um, a woman who's assistant principal. Another woman actually who was trained and was an educational leader, but after she had her children stayed home. So she's staying home right now with her children, but also still working part-time outside of the home in educational leadership. Um, in the schools um, by supporting student teachers and then there's me and I currently work at a university in teacher education um, so teaching students um, college students to be teachers oh cool cool right on thanks awesome awesome and so you know one of the things I know just to give a little background to our listeners here Sarah that you and I have talked about is you know, the, the way you're doing your research, and correct me if I say this wrong, um, is through a feminist lens. Is that the right way to say it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's the right way to say that, I would say. Okay. And so that's why... Go ahead. So I'm looking through my work. So when you do a dissertation, you have to pick or determine what theory you're going to use as you look through your data. And um, so I'm using feminist... Um, and feminist theory, and also my methods are feminist in nature, meaning they're gonna, it's gonna privilege the stories that these women share. Um, it's reflect, reflexive in nature, it's collaborative in nature. So those are all characteristics of feminist research methods. Okay, so, the, okay, got it, got it. Like I guess, and then the feminist theory is the understanding or the belief that there should be equality between men and women. Just simply state that's so real quick. So that's how you would define feminism is there should be equality between men and women. Yes, that's I think as simple as that. Okay. Is there a difference between because uh, you said you know like that's the sort of theoretical, very simple, straightforward kind of definition of feminism? Is that typically like when I hear the word feminism, I usually associate it with. Um, you know, bloggers or authors, people on social media that I see in the news who are advocating feminist ideals um, and that kind of same, you know, framework uh, and lens. Uh, and is that basically the same thing or is there a different definition of feminism that a lot of these women um, or people in general that you would see in the media advocating? Are, are they similar, the same? Are they different in some way? Or can we just kind of go with that definition uh, for at least for this conversation's sake? I would say that when you get... I think even a lot of the bloggers or the different people that say that they're a feminist, if that's summer, how they could summarize that view is that equality between men and women. Um, I think the term feminist has been, I guess for lack of a better word, corrupted um, to be a bad word. Mm -hmm. 
you know, to say feminist brings up its own images, mm-hmm. but, you know, have this idea of like a man hater, you know, burn your bras, those type of images. And we hear the term feminist because there is my understanding and belief um, through what I've read too, is that it's out of fear. Like what happens if we really did have equality between men and women? So we're fearful what that might be. So we, there's corruption in then what a feminist really means when she says, or he says, because men can be feminists too, when they say, I'm a feminist. Yeah, so I that think, term has negative connotations to it. You know, that gets into a little bit when, we, when you start talking about that, that fear that what happens if everything does become equal. Because when you, when you give us the, the definition of feminism that men and women should be equal, you know, I think a lot of us here just think, yeah, you're right. Hey, thanks for the discussion. We're done. But just like our right. discussion, just like our discussion a couple weeks ago on racism, you know, it should be very simple. Hey, black and white people, we're, we're we should be equal, and and that's not what happens. And we're we are latently racist. We are latently, you know, sexist. Late- sexist. Yeah, sexist. Thank you. You, yeah. you know, it, it, it's behind the scenes, and and so we we kind of see that stuff all the time where we don't see it. And so uh, what are some examples that, that you see out there that are uh, some of these sexist behaviors that are, that I would say are not the, the really blatant ones. Well, let's just, you know, we've seen that and we know that, but what are some of the ones that we might not catch? Good question. Um, well, I think dress, right? Um, dress is always, we always talk about how women dress, what should women wear, you know, is that skirt too short, is, although I guess that's like a more out there too, but as far as with even my teachers preparing my students, you know, that becomes a conversation of what is appropriate dress, and I find that we have to, that I guess we've been socialized, that we have to have that conversation more with females than males. I don't know if actually that's the best example. So another maybe example that I can think of in my own personal life um, is the time that I was um, passed over for a job because of where I was in my life. I had just had a baby. And so I was pretty much told that even though I was qualified and able, that that was being, you, I guess, you know, looked at as a bad thing. So I wasn't going to be considered for the position. You were outright told you weren't going to be put because of, because you just had a baby. Cause and now and that, that is technically illegal, right? Yes, it is. I'm not saying it doesn't happen. I'm just saying it is technically illegal, right? Yeah, it is technically. And another example, actually in that same way, um, a job that I did get hired for shortly after I had, um, so my children, I actually found out after the I was hired from people that were in the interview that one of the biggest points of discussion on should I be hired or not was because I was a young mother. So they weren't talking in the debrief about my qualifications or if I could do um, the academic work or to be able to meet the job expectations. I guess the concern with me meeting the job expectations had nothing to do with my work ethic and everything to do with the fact that I was a mom. And I don't think those conversations happen with men. When we hire men that are family, that have families, the conversation is never, can he do the job? Um, It's, you know, so, I mean, that was a very real conversation that they had and the, the, 
the biggest like strike against me was that I was a mom with young children. So therefore I shouldn't, it was, it raised a red flag and was cause for concern that I would be able to do my job. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas I felt like in that situation, I also had, um, the opportunity to be a model, you know, to be able to be like, yeah, I can do this, you know, and I can yeah. help other people and we can, and be in community together with others to do this. Um, you know, meaning the community with, you know, other, with friends that could have, I would, I have friends, I have a support system that can help, but also again, just again, helping other women see like we can be each other's support system in this and how do we make this happen um, so that we can be, feel like we're doing good work in our in our career um, vocation and good work in our mothering vocation. That it doesn't can have to a, be an either or. Can I ask a quick question? Because um, when you were uh, when you were talking about that, uh, which seems pretty lame that they would use those criteria that have nothing to do with your professional skill set, but your motherhood skill set uh, or situation, I guess. But, you know, it's interesting. I, I heard you say that uh, you know, you really wanted to kind of be this voice of, of coalescing, you know, other women together to say, hey, let's create a community, let's support one another, um, let's kind of work together to to show that we can that we are still capable and can do it. And I'm just asking this because I would I'm just honestly curious what the feminist perspective would be, but that sounds somewhat like I get it, uh, wanting to bring together, unite women's voices and experiences shared or not to um, kind of, I don't want to say like demonstrate a position of power, but to demonstrate ability uh, and, and fairness and equality. But in that situation, would you also say, hey, what if like, what if Tom was like your biggest advocate and supporter? Would that diminish sort of the strength of that position? Uh, if you said, hey, let's get a bunch of women and bring Tom on, or would that, by bringing a man in, uh, would that sort of undermine, I guess, the feminist ideal of saying we're just as equal, just as capable, you, our voices can stand on their own, like without the help of or without right. the presence of a, of a male voice, I guess. Okay, so interesting thought. I have two thoughts on that. One, I think the important any social justice work, and I see feminism being part of social justice work, which I've recently read some things on how that term is kind of being corrupted, I guess, for lack of a better word again, um, which is probably another topic. But my belief is that we have to work across difference in these, you know, we have to work across differences of race, class, because my experience as a white woman is completely different than experiences of a Latina woman or a black woman, right? So we have different experiences, but we need to work, find ways to bridge those experiences. And men are a part of that too, right? So men have their own experiences as they're experiencing the world. But at the same time, I don't feel like we need, and I guess this is coming from, so recently with my research, I've started presenting at conferences or sharing like when I had to defend my first part of my proposal and at, at the re those recent events that I've done with my dissertation, my dissertation is specifically focusing on women and the experiences of women. And the feedback that I always get from the men is, hey, but men feel this too, and you're not considering the men. And so part of my argument is like, 
I'm not saying that men don't have maybe some of the same experiences that I'm bringing to light in my paper and in my work, my research, but what I'm saying right now is women's experiences that I'm gathering in my, in my work are good enough to stand on their own. They don't need, I don't need a man to make my experience valid, I guess. And that's really... So it's just interesting that, that that's usually, I mean, it is. It's been men that have commented that, like, hey, you're leaving out men in this work. And I guess on the flip, because to flip that is there's been plenty of research that's been done on men, and we're not saying, like, hey, did you forget about women in this work? You know, there's some research that's just for men. And I think there can be some research that's just for women because by nature, like, even as women, I can't, I can't understand what it's like to be a man because I'm not a man, you know? Sure. So I can't understand my husband's lived experience as a man. Now I can read things and I can, you know, try to understand that. But I also think when we don't say that, hey, women's experiences are valid just in and of themselves, which is to me these comments, it means that I always need to have a man to like validate, which I even think it goes to what it's saying too is my thinking. Like my thinking has to even be validated by a man to say that it's okay for me to think that or believe that. It's really interesting you say so that. I don't know if that Actually, makes sense or. Yeah, no, definitely. It, and it, it's funny because it's really interesting you mentioned that because when you, academically, uh, and I've seen this recently, at least in, because most of my work is done within, you know, a, a racial inequity and that kind of thing, that, so say as a, as a white man, which I am, as a white man, if I were to write an academic paper and substantiate my research, my thesis, my points of view with only white male authorship, that everyone would tear that apart and say, well, this is completely one-sided. You have to, like, it's necessary to substantiate your research with the voices of women, the voices of uh, people of color, and, you know, you could just kind of keep the list going on. And what's really interesting is it's almost a, or it's like you're saying that in, in your line of work, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but in your line of work, that that actually undermines what you're trying to do because you don't need a man's voice to substantiate the legitimacy of not only your research, but also your arguments, your assertions, and points of view. Uh, and so, I, like I said, I don't really have one way or the other, but it's just funny because if, at least in the, in the academic realm, if a man were to completely neglect the voices of, of women and, you know, people of color, whatever, it would be kind of a negative thing. But is it true, I guess, then within the world of feminist academia that you can sort of leave out the voices of, of men and, and other things, uh, and it's still, I guess, as legitimate? Uh, yeah, and I would say it's not leaving out the voices of men, and I guess I would be su I'm surprised that you have that view on academia because so much of academia, actually academia started in, with male, white, you know, and it was very privileged that way. No, no, so, that's what I'm saying. Still, that's what I'm saying is like. Yeah, and it's still that. It's still that way. Like men still, and I'm sure a critique, which obviously I'm getting that critique, right? A critique of my work is going to be that I've left out. You know, for some people, they're going to critique. It's man. It's you know, I'm leaving out the man's experience. But I also, you know, I feel like I'm prepared to answer that critique, which is like how I just explained tonight, and that I don't need. You know, it doesn't fit in the work right now. Like. We don't talk about, especially in schools, we don't talk about the challenges that women face in the schools um, as mothers. There's been a lot of work that's been coming out recently, right, like even the Lean In, right, by Sheryl Sandberg. So we're talking about it, starting to talk about it in the business world, but we don't talk about it in education. 
um, which is ironic because 80% of the teaching force is female, is, is are women. And that percentage actually flips um, more askew to be more male. Um, it's, there's more males in administration there are, than there are in um than there are um, females, which is interesting, right? When you have 80% of your, like, those who can promote up, let's say, right? So it should, you should be seeing more women in administration, right? You should see those percentages being the same, but they're not. So as a researcher, that's, of course, one of the things I'm like, why is that, yeah. you know? And so one of my arguments, and actually one of the things that I've read in previous research is the reason why women aren't taking these leadership positions is because they feel like they're having to sacrifice their family for the position. So very much like the conversation going kind of making the connection back to my own personal interview. Again, I wasn't almost hired for that leadership position, not because of my qualifications or the experiences that I didn't have. It was about the fact that I was a mother. And um, so... Yeah. Yeah. Well, let so me. So women know so, that. Women know that. That's a subconscious. So women know that, and then they don't go. They don't put themselves into those positions. Yes. Yeah. yeah. But men don't have to ask themselves that question. They don't. They don't get asked those questions in the interview. It's like recently, who's the um the automotive companies at Ford? GM. Someone, right. And one GM. of the first questions. GM. Yeah. Running the first question she was asked in one of her first public interviews is, "How are you balancing work and family?" Men never get asked that question in the interview. No one ever asks dads, how are you balancing work and family? And they don't get asked that because the assumption is they have a wife at home taking care, care of the kids, care regardless of what the wife is doing. Well, so let me, sir, let me pause you here because yeah. I think that leads into, it, it ties into our previous discussion earlier where we were talking about kind of the distinctions on like, you know, we all agree like men and women equalize a guy. We have the same amount of value, worth, dignity. Jesus died as much for women as he did for men. God created women with as much dignity as he created men. Uh, but then the question gets into like, are there distinct roles for men and for women? And I'm asking that question. I'm not implying anything uh, yet. I'll get there. But um, but so I just want to ask this question though, just because knowing, I you know I know you and, and I know you're a Christian. I know you're a strong Christian who loves the Lord. Uh, what does that look like for you? You know, because oftentimes I think it's easy to kind of brand like, oh, feminism. That's those secular people over there that have their agenda and are doing their thing and nothing like us nice moral religious people who wear our long skirts and that sort of thing. And so so for you, like, what's it? what does it mean for you to be a Christian and a feminist? Like, what's that look like? How's that intersection in your life? Um, I think, you know, it's always so hard for me when I feel like, I feel like, I don't know, I feel like when we don't accept the other, and I I guess so much of our world is really set up that anything but a um, white male is kind of labeled as an other, you know, um, just being systems and structures and things. So to me, like I, when I feel like as a Christian, I feel like Jesus came for everybody. He came for the least. He's... Um, you know, he came for the outsiders. He came for the others. Yeah. And so that's that's where I'm at is like he would never, you know, he hung out with the lowest of the low in society. And so that's what's so hard for me when I sometimes, you know, I don't even always know just that that particular type of Christian wants to like segregate or, or is judgmental towards, you know, whatever, homeless people, you know, right. people that 
feel like they, you know, they feel like they're lazy because they can't get a job because that's why they're poor. I mean, I just, I don't, I don't buy into that stuff, you know, and I think those are narratives that we've created out of our own because we live in a sinful world. Um, so, so, I mean, that's, so that's where I'm at with, I mean, that's where I'm at with that. I just, I don't think that, yeah, I mean, I, well, so I, I don't, you, see, there, I I don't can... see there being a disconnect between being a Christian and a feminist. Like those to me are not contradictory terms. Like I feel like, I feel like Christians should be feminists. You should be fighting for the rights of women to have equality across, um, in the world. You know that women should have rights to education. Women should have rights to vote. We should have, um, reproductive rights, whatever those may be. And of course, I know that gets another kind so of hot topic, right? That's <laughs> another easy, episode. Easy, Tiger. Just drop Whoa. that bomb, Sarah. Just drop that bomb, Sarah. Just walk drop away. it. I think when, in saying that, it, it raises the question of, of, I guess, how we define equality. Because, you know, uh, I, I would agree. Yeah, we should be, there, there shouldn't be a distinction, or, or I guess this problem with the term Christian feminist. Um, uh, but as a theologian, a white male theologian at that, I would say that I'm all about the equal rights of women, like in, in all respects. But at the same time, I would argue that scripture uh, defines roles of, of men and women differently in the church. Um, and to that end, I guess, how does that I mean, how, how do I get out from under the label then that I'm not actually treating men and women equally if I'm saying that there are unique roles for each men and women, at least within the church? I'm not talking about societal roles or anything like that, but um, I mean, am I not, I mean, obviously I'm not a feminist, I guess, but Am I, is my definition of equality skewed? Yeah, I don't know. And, you know, I would say the jury for me is out on that yet because I haven't studied that part of Scripture. You know, I am bringing actually into my dissertation the story of creation um, and that being the start of um, patriarchy that we see in our culture because that story, when we tell the story of creation, it's often told um, with Eve being the focus, that Eve... Um, Eve was the one that took the fruit from the tree, Eve did this, Eve did this, you know, and so that I actually, so for my dissertation, I argue that that's really the start of historical, um, the idea that women are inferior, that women um, shouldn't be educated, that women were evil, um, that those ideas actually started in that scripture story because we focused on, the, we focused on Eve um, and not on the fact that we were designed to be in partnership with each other, com complete partnership. Mm -hmm. One was not to be better than the other, and that the fall, though, of course, put us into a sinful world, which means now we have patriarchy in our world, and we have this hierarchy, you know, sure, men sure. over women. And, and I, know, I know pastors and churches and uh, theologians ha have made that jump uh, to this kind of extreme patriarchy based on something like eat, you know, Eve eating the fruit first. Um, but how do we, I guess, how do we escape the fact that that's sort of the biblical narrative, that that's the way it played out? Um, and I don't mean it to say that to, let's justify patriarchy, but here'd be my question. Where was Adam? How do you right. understand the story to right. be? Where was Adam? When Eve was taking well, the fruit. So Sarah, that's actually like, so that's, that's, that's how I've heard it. Right. Is that Adam was actually dropping the ball as a husband. 
that like, so for, for example, whenever I teach, yeah, he's there, but he's not. And, and so when I teach that story, I say, he never stopped her. right. But how do we, where does it say that he, hold on. Where does it say that he was there? Cause it seems like we're extrapolating and we're saying we're creating this, this scene, you know, that Eve was there and Adam was kind of like standing 10 feet away being like, uh, yeah, I'm going to throw you under the bus, Eve. You grab that stuff. You know, you grab that fruit first. But like, that's what I'm saying. Like where, where, where does it yeah, say that, bro, you know, what if you, you don't like, I, I always teach it this way. Like, but see, and this is where it maybe sounds patriarchal. And so that's always kind of my concern here is because this is how I teach it. I say, husbands, you shouldn't let your wife talk to the devil. It's not good for your wife to talk to the devil. If that's happening, you should not let that happen. And that sounds really misogynistic, right? It sounds controlling. But what I'm saying is it's a husband's role to protect his wife. And once see, again, that sounds see, misogynistic, care, but that's what I, I think is true. I don't care who ate the fruit first. That's what I'm saying. Like, I don't care if Adam would have eaten the fruit first or Eve would have eaten the fruit first. Like, both were equal in the sin. And so yes. what, what, what I hesitate in is to extrapolate from the story and say, well, Adam you know, created patriarchy because he was there and observing this and letting it happen and then blaming Eve for it because I just don't see – that doesn't show up in Scripture. And I guess I'm just saying that if Adam had done it, the story would be different. If Adam had taken the fruit first, the story would be different. Could it be the That's fact true. that okay. patriarchy yeah, yeah. wouldn't exist? No, but I still then think it would have been that, extreme yeah. feminism for the last, you know, for the history of the world. Like that, if, if <laughs> and that's why, no, but that's what I'm saying. It's kind of a dangerous road to go down if we begin to extrapolate things from the biblical narrative that just aren't there. Because let, I mean, let's just run that through. So if Adam eats it first, who, how, how can we not say, I guess, that the, the course of history and gender roles would not be reversed? I mean, like, that's not, in my mind at least, that's not much of a stretch. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, we, I mean, we don't know. Right. I mean, I just, I'm just saying that I, I think just, and I think that's part of my own, I guess, coming to terms partly with who I am as a woman because I grew up in the church, but you hear that story and that story is always told from Eve's perspective, you know, with Eve being the evil doer in that there is some like subconscious stuff that you start to take in, right? As like okay. who, like what is your worth as a female then? Because are you really inherently evil? Like, you know, but aren't we all inherently, you know, sinful and evil, you know? But then when you also see then it, ha like actions happening within like day to day where women are being excluded from things just because they're a woman, you know, how does it just kind of, I don't know, it's just hard. How do you reconcile that? And then what is, you know, it, I think as you grow up, you just start to internalize those things. And it's not been until I got older that I was able to step back and kind of question and be like, whoa, is this how it's supposed to be? Or is this, yeah. you know, well, I, I, I definitely have beliefs of socially constructed, that a lot of our things are socially constructed, that we call them natural, but they may not really be natural. Um, Can you give us an we example we of that, Sarah? Um, so, like, that women are, by nature, more nurturing than men. So, sure, there's some women that are more nurturing than men. I would say that in my relation, in our parenting with my husband, that I am more the nurturer. And actually, mine are just even posted something on Facebook this week about a conversation that really the boys were saying, you know, I was the nicer one out of, you know, the two of us. Um, but I also know that there's relationships. I can I have also friends validate that. that. As being true. 
Okay. Um, so I tend to be that, right? Um, but I also have couple friends that I would say the husband is the more nurturing one in the, you know, in the parenting yeah. role and not the female. So then how does yeah. that female struggle with, oh, I'm supposed to be a nurturer, but I don't feel like I'm, you know, or my husband is nurturing more than, you know, so then yeah. I think then those lead to questions of like, am I a good mom? Because I don't feel this innate ability to want to like nurture my kids, you know? And I think that so also are, goes to that whole like... Are you, are you elevating one one example or a couple examples or or is this a legitimate stereotype? Meaning like is are women like, nurturers that... Well, so you've got a friend who who's a woman who doesn't feel that she's that nurturing and you don't see her as that nurturing or whatever. So you can't extrapolate that out though to, to that it's a, it's a straight 50-50 split, you know, for those who are going to argue that women are more nurturing than men. Yeah. And I, I mean, I don't know. I mean, that would be an interesting study, like to, you know, survey women, like, do you feel like you're more, you know, and I think that goes to the question of, you know, when women become, or when you become um, a mother or father, there's this idea that, like, all of a sudden you just know how to parent or you just know how to mother, and, you know, they put the baby in your arms and you just are, like, in love with this baby, right? Right. That's not the experience for every woman. So then you have women that, you know, and, of course, that you have hormonal things that are happening too, which is, you know, but a lot of women that struggle with postpartum depression, that is also part of, yeah. Part of it is they're not, they don't feel like they're connecting with their baby, so they feel like there's something wrong with them. And my goodness, yeah. I don't think we're, you know, and again, historically, actually, like in the medieval times, you didn't connect with your baby. You weren't supposed to connect with your baby because guess what? Your baby might die. Like actually your yeah. baby was probably going to die. So you didn't connect with this being because if you connected with the being, then you would experience loss. And who wants to experience loss when you know the chances of your baby dying are very great? So it wasn't until a later point in um, history when mortality rates, infant mortality rates started to rise that we started seeing this shift in how we should be in our parenting roles. So again, I think that, like, we forget about that. We forget that there was a history. We forget that children now in in society are really, and I would almost argue, to the detriment to sometimes to marriages, right? That the children are supposed to be the end-all, be-all in a family and in a marriage, right? I see some friends that have struggled with that, which I think we've gone the other way then. That is not, children have a place and, and I don't think the marriage should suffer because of children. But yet many people, and I think we can see it in, you know, in our, I think we can see it in our churches the way, you know, kids' kids' schedules, kids' needs run families, you know? So that's, that's a new social construction. Well, and how much can we chalk up to social, social constructions versus, and I know we don't have, to, unfortunately we don't have time to get into it today, but I, I, w- I would... I'm just so curious to see what what we would chalk up, or at least what uh, what feminism would chalk up to, or if at all, actually, I guess, uh, to societal constructs versus um, biological sort of realities, or if that's even a fair thing to say, or you know, not the right terminology, you know, because I think about roles, and uh, especially today we talk about gender roles and that kind of thing, like they're just some biological facts, like I can't have a baby, I can't. Breast, breast, you know, I can't, right. I don't grow this child in my womb. And so as a father, I have a different physical and biological connection with this child than, than a mother does. You know what I mean? And so a lot of those things. Right, but I almost think it, 
some point, that's really the only difference. You know, like, I don't know how to parent any more than my husband knows how to parent. Like, there, there was not, yeah. there's, like, I don't have a DNA or something inscripted in me that tells me how to be a parent or to be a mother. You know what I mean? And he doesn't but have... You're using the word parenting, I believe, in, in something very different than, than in a very natural connection to a child. Because a woman, a woman carries a child. She feels the child kick. She feels it grow. Uh, all those different things. You mentioned the, the hormones change. All of those types of things. Uh, a baby is more in tune to the mother's voice and, and smell and, and things like that. And so... That to me, that's just a biological thing. It has nothing to do with parenting because we're all in the same boat. When this baby comes out, you're like, "Oh my gosh, I don't know what to do." Right, absolutely. And I would say there is definitely like a woman has a time that she needs to heal from her with you know giving birth and, but yet, so it's interesting. Like sometimes I feel like we want to recognize it, the biological differences. But then yet we don't because guess how much leave we get, you know, maternity leave. Like yeah. women get, it depends on how you have a baby and then we, you know, put you in uh, back into work. Whereas some cultures, and again, this is actually biologically, babies are born really three months too soon. And they're born three months too soon because women can't grow babies any bigger in their uterus because of their hips, right? So so anyone who's had an infant knows it's miserable because you're feeding around the clock, the baby is sleeping, because the baby still needs those three months to grow and develop, right? Yeah. So if we were really thinking about what mothers biologically needed, those three months, and some cultures actually do this, they seclude the women, and they get those three months to sleep, to be with their baby, and to rest, you know? And it'd be interesting, I don't know anything statistically, but... Cultures that do that, do those women have as much postpartum depression? I don't know. I might suspect maybe not because they're able to heal and process and not have to worry about coming home, you know, three days after having a baby and still picking up the groceries for dinner or, you know, do laundry or whatever, it, it, all the other stuff that needs to be done around the house. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's great. And Sarah, I, I'm so grateful for, for your thoughts. No, 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 you're fine. It's been awesome. And we've loved having you. And I think, you know, as we can kind of see as this conversation's going, there's so much more we could talk about, so many different places we could go. And uh, you, you clearly have shared a lot of wisdom and insight with us. And so uh, we're really grateful for you being with us. And so we'll do, we'll do feminism. And I was thinking, part two, yeah, see, and I was just thinking, see, I did something that I've been socially. Um, taught to do is I apologize for taking too much time. Do you see that? Even though I'm a feminist, I'm still well, <laughs> falling into you know, what polite. society tells me. It's also just me. being polite. I mean, yeah, I was just saying, you know, you're, you're I do that all the time. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're you, fine. You've been sitting here rambling for hours, and it's the polite thing to do to just apologize <laughs> okay. for that. So. Oh, Tom. Oh, Tom. Oh, Tom. Digging the hole. Hey, okay. on that note, we're going to take a quick break. One more shout-out to our good friend, Dasi. Hope you enjoy it. We'll be back to uh, close this bad boy up. Thanks for listening to Pint Glass Preachers and a special thanks to our good friend, Sarah Baker, for joining yeah, us. Yeah, Sarah Baker. Come on. Hey.
right, welcome back again. That was Dossie. She's awesome. She really also, is. Yeah, she really is. And so was Sarah Baker. That was a great conversation. So I want to just... Uh, Women are awesome. Yes, good job. That'll get you off the couch. Uh, what did we get out of this discussion today? Man, I think... I think it's easy to sort of stereotype feminism. I mean, early on, Sarah mentioned that, right? Like that we kind of have this image in our head of like bra burning, you know, hairy armpits, I hate men, like that sort of thing. And when you when you boil it down as simply as she did that, that men and women should be treated as equals, like it is, that's a pretty simple concept that I think everyone should be able to get behind. And, and so that, I don't, yeah. Well, um, and I was just going to say, that's kind of, I guess that's how, that's how I feel, uh, even after our conversation today. And it's, I, I think it's the position that I've taken personally and professionally is to, to say that men and women should be treated equally. Uh, and then as a pastor, you know, looking at that from a theological perspective is to stand in the middle. And I think that's the, the greatest challenge to conversations like this is to not fall into the temptation of taking an extreme feminist perspective that, you know, all men are out to get women or oppress women or that, you know, absolute patriarchy is like the ramp, you know, like what all men desire, but also not to, to take it to the extent, like when Sarah mentioned with that, you know, like I've never been to a church that said it was all Eve's fault. Maybe I've been blessed with good pastors, but it just goes to show that there are people, Christians who, who take just ridiculous perspectives uh, on that as well. So, I mean, as with many things, Stay, you know, staying in the middle and being fair to, to both sides and willing to at least engage, uh, I think is the best option for this as many other things. So when you said that, like, as a pastor, you stand in between men and women, I thought you meant like you're like a Ken doll downstairs. You know what I mean? Maybe I am. Okay. That's cool. That's well, cool. No, I shouldn't say that. I mean, I've had four kids, so clearly that's not clearly it's working. Yeah, absolutely. Anyway, that's super awkward. Uh, so let me make it less awkward and offer some shout outs as we close down this episode. Oh, Axe Leander, thank you once again, Sarah, for joining us as a member of Axe Church Leander. You can uh, say what's up to Sarah on Sunday mornings uh, or throughout the week and whatever she does over there and whatever Gabe does. But if you're in the Austin area and you want to hang out with some raging liberal feminist Austinites, then uh, go visit Axe Church Leander. Is it .org or .com? We own it all. Oh, there you go. Authoritative, absolute done and done you can visit the website or visit them on sunday mornings for a wonderful worship experience uh if you want to go hang out with some single oppressed mothers with either terrible or no fathers present at all feel free to stop by bridge city community church down in the south side of chattanooga tennessee and tom we're just gonna let him be alone right now because he offends women particularly sarah on a regular basis so sarah i'm gonna apologize on behalf of tom and give you a shout out for your utter amount of patience in this conversation today. And finally, Tom's mom, Janet, I want to personally thank you for officially subscribing to Pine Glass Preachers. I got the email from PayPal today and from our web host, and Tom's mom, Janet O'Neill, has officially subscribed. Dude, we're up to six bucks a month. Hey-oh. That's my mom. Thanks, mom. Way to go, Janet. Thanks for giving us time. Talk about a nurturing mother right there supporting Tom's every endeavor Tom close us out but we're not sure if it's biologically that she's nurturing us or if it was a social construct next week we are going to be talking about politics 
and we are excited about that. We're going to be talking Trump. We're going to be talking Hillary. We're going to be talking lots of different things about that. Feeling the burn. In the mean, in the meantime, follow us on Twitter, follow us on Facebook, follow us on Skype, or whatever the social media is that you use. We'd like to see you there. We'd like to have a conversation. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pint Glass Preachers. We'll see you next week.